Are you listening to this ad right now? Do you see how effective podcast advertising is? Do you want your product to have weekly exposure to the most connected accountants and bookkeepers on the planet? Stay tuned to hear more about sponsoring the Cloud Accounting Podcast later in the episode. And it's just not like that mindset cannot be there with small businesses. Delivering avocado toast, fine. Be a bull company, fake it. But if you're going to get into our space, accounting and bookkeeping, you need to do it correctly. Yes. That's it. If not, get out of our space. Go go work on avocado toast deliveries. It kind of pisses me off that this attitude is there of like soap. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Clockshark. Back in October of 2013, I became Clockchart's first Twitter follower. Today, Clockchart has grown to a highly rated and very much loved time tracking app that is now used by over 5,000 small businesses globally. With features like crew tracking, scheduling, overtime notifications, routes, geofencing locations, job costing, budgeting, and reporting, Clockchart has built a robust mobile time tracking app to handle the unique challenges that face your mobile workforce clients. Their technology has been helpful as their clients work through the COVID-19 pandemic. Your clients will need accurate records of their expenses and losses, and technology like Clockchart helps. With Clockchart, your clients can keep accurate records like paid time off and other important data to provide the necessary proof for CARES and FFCRA Act benefits. This lets them get straight back to work without too much disruption after the pandemic has passed. Clockchart standard plan is just $6 a month per employee. Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash clockchart. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash C-L-O-C-K-S-H-R-K. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by BQE Core. I recently had two Zoom calls with accountants that use BQE Core for their professional service clients like architects, engineers, consultants, and lawyers. One accountant called it the missing link for professional services. Another said that BQE Core is the only game in town for job profitability in the cloud. My biggest takeaway from the conversations was how you can 100% use BQE Core as your standalone accounting system or pair it up with either QuickBooks Online or Xero. Either way, you get to take advantage of all the advanced features of BQE Core like adjustment invoicing, budgets, labor costs, forecasting, contract analysis, and approval processes. Cloud Accounting Podcast listeners will receive three months of BQE Core for free with an annual subscription package purchased on or before September 30th, 2020. To learn more, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash core. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash C-O-R-E. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. So you're back from your California vacation, Venice Beach. How was that, David? Yeah, I unplugged for two days. I, I did not touch a computer, laptop, and it was really, really hard not to on the phone touch Slack. It was good to get out of Arizona, got to be in some like 78 degree temperatures. It was interesting because we, we hung around Venice Beach a little bit, but with LA being kind of shut down, it didn't have that California busyness. Were there so restaurants we were, open, bars open? There, yeah, so what? because I think the weather is nice compared to Arizona, a lot of restaurants just set up tables on the parking lot. And the, people can just dine on the parking lot. So and it was interesting. Like even people that were like normally you go to a restaurant and you wait in the lobby for your table. Mm-hmm. People are just standing in the parking lot drinking. Like the enforcement just didn't seem to be there. Venice Beach wasn't too packed, but uh, Santa Monica, it was like looking at Phoenix. I mean, people were just everywhere. It was packed. Were so, they wearing masks? You know, most people, I'd say it's probably 75% masks. Okay. Um, even myself, like, you know, I'd, I'd have my mask off. If I saw somebody walking down the sidewalk towards me, I'd put it back on. That type right, of right. scenario, right? If you're by yourself, you take your mask off. The beach, everybody stayed pretty much spread apart. Um, people were sitting. You could sit on the beach, but you had 
plenty of room. Nobody's around you for 25, 30 feet. Yeah, I've been to LA before. And when you want to do something, you're going to do that one thing in one day. We were able to take my daughter to the UCLA campus. We did Koreatown. We did three different stops in Koreatown. We did like a K-pop store because you know that uh, K-pop mm-hmm. music right now. And then we did, um, we literally parked at the corner of Hollywood and Vine street parking. Like everywhere we went, we had street parking for two wow. bucks. And so we knocked out like six things in the city of LA, Rodeo Drive, everything in yeah. one, like, like a four hour time frame because there was no traffic. That's you amazing. Just do anything you want. It was really like, like if you had to go visit LA, like do it now because nothing's busy. Good tip. <laughs> it's easy to get around. That's great. So. Well, I, I was here in Arizona in Scottsdale, in my new home. And I experienced my first monsoon. Yes, finally it's raining here. Now, I should qualify that by saying it didn't actually rain on our place, but the huge thunderclouds came overhead. And I've never seen anything like it. They're they're flat on the bottom, like almost completely flat. At least these ones were. And I think it's something to do with like atmospheric pressure. But anyway, there was a, there was dust. There was wind. It didn't actually rain oh, right over us. And we had the most beautiful sunset I've ever seen afterward. But yeah, it's 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 interesting, you know, like in, in, in LA, the sort of like the clouds just come over and they just blanket the city. You don't get patches of uh, sky and cloud. <laughs> so I feel like we have more nature here in a way in the desert. Uh, but, but also I saw an article uh, about, you know, how coronavirus is going in Arizona. I could not believe this. You know that I'm not a big fan of lockdowns. I mean, part of the reason I moved from California to to Phoenix is because I was not optimistic about how the state was handling uh, lockdowns. And, you know, I have a kid in school and my wife and I both work and we wanted to continue our lives. And we couldn't imagine spending the next year in a form of lockdown and not having the schools open and all that. Well, New York Times is reporting, the headline is, what Arizona's tenuous coronavirus plateau can teach us seeming to acknowledge that this staying open with reasonable restrictions and wearing masks is working in Arizona. At least the last few weeks are showing that. You know, we, ha- we didn't hit 100% ICU capacity. We just grazed it like 80, 90%. Everybody's wearing masks because the vast majority of people in Arizona live in two counties that have implemented mask requirements, right? And uh, it's working. So like restaurants are open, people are wearing masks, people are going out shopping, it can be done. You know, it doesn't have to be this politicized partisan issue where it's one or the other, you know, either we're all open and we're all just going to get it COVID and we just accept that. Like that's not, that's not realistic, reasonable, but also just locking down and staying at home until this goes away is not either. So yeah, I've switched my focus just to focus on Pima County where I live. Right. mm -hmm. Um, And I just watch the numbers every day here and yeah, it's turning, it's trending down again. And I always thought this in the beginning, like we'll figure out the balance, right? It's and for lack of a better word, it's not supply and demand, but this like risk reward, right? It'll start to climb too high and people will just scale back their activities. Then it'll start going down and people will feel comfortable and go out and we're going to like, it's probably going to find this magic flat line. And it's very clear. Also, I was looking at the graphs this morning. I was thinking about this. It's coincidental that we both were looking at this. I was like, look, we actually, in a weird way as a society, can control the graph now. Right. Yeah. Like based, and, and it's happening naturally based on people's individual actions on the whole. That, that's affecting the graph more than anything, probably. And that's the thing. It's personal responsibility is far more important than government mandates. Like you saw, if, if people don't want to obey these rules, they, there's no way for the state of California to enforce it. So it's it's about getting people to do this. And I feel as, a, as accountants, we're in this interesting place because we are small business owners ourselves. We have clients that are struggling and we want them to succeed. So we, we want to balance the economy 
with public safety. And there are ways to do this. It doesn't have to be Republican versus Democrat, liberal versus conservative, libertarian versus authoritarian. We can make sensible decisions. The free market's figuring it out, yeah. right? It's becoming in a balance on its own. I've got more stories about uh, the pandemic and about the stimulus and, and shifting into the accounting news. I know you have a big story about Scale Factor. Follow up on that. Scale Factor. Yep. I have uh, some listener feedback on our last episode and a bit of nerdy modern monetary theory economics to talk about. Did I mention stimulus? I think I did. Yep, stimulus. So the the, the I just want to highlight this right now. The big news is okay. as we record, it's July 25th. The $600 federal unemployment bonus amount is expiring at the end of this month. So there is a ton of pressure in Congress right now to make something happen. And what's crazy is that the Republicans don't have a plan yet. It's been delayed now until Monday, with Saturday as we record. So Mitch McConnell is apparently going to have some sort of plan on Monday for the Republicans to look at. It's a counter to the Democrats' plan. Well, because last week we – like. We said, hey, this is good. next week we'll be talking about some announcements for stimulus. And it kind of stalled this week. And now you're down to, what do you have, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? They do not have a lot of time to get this done. And it's putting the Republicans at a disadvantage. There, there was an article in Accounting Today. Headline is, McConnell's stimulus waiting game turns into a race against the clock. Kind of highlighting how waiting until the, the unemployment benefit, the federal unemployment benefit ran out is is probably not the best strategy because what's going to happen if it runs out and they don't have a deal? Republicans are going to get blamed for it. And this is critical stimulus for millions and millions and millions of people who are out of work. I I just think like politically letting it expire completely is just not an option. But yet the Republicans don't have agreement internally about what to do. And the White House is still proposing this ridiculous plan that apparently nobody cares about other than them, which is the payroll tax cut. Yeah, which I think... uh I think I saw an article here on payments, uh, payments.com that the GOP and the White House right, have agreed on a plan now. And so the White House is kind of basically the Donald Trump uh, payroll tax thing is not going to make it. Right. Yeah, that, that was like never even close to being in the plan. And, and that's per Mnuchin. But they do favor a stimulus check. They just don't know how. Uh, there's no details on it, right? They've also are leaning against doing unemployment for the extra 600 bucks. And they're thinking there's some way to do like a 70% of your income type of a thing. So there, there's a lot like you're right. It's, it's great. Like nobody knows what's going to hit the table because I think if I understand it correctly, the, the GOP is like, they want to do a trillion dollar package for CARES Act 4.0 as they're calling it. And I, my understanding is the Democrats are still pushing for like a $3 trillion or $4 trillion package. Yep. Three and a half, something like that. It's a, it's a lot more. Um, there's, there's a great article on Reuters summarizing what Democrats and Republicans want in the next coronavirus relief package. That's actually the title of this story, what Democrats and Republicans want in the next coronavirus relief package. And this was written uh, on July 22nd. So it's a, it's a, it's a few days old. Hopefully things haven't changed too much. Um, I can just highlight what they agree on, what they disagree on. Republicans and Democrats agree on direct payments to Americans. As you said, those $1,200 stimulus checks where you get another, I think 500 for a, a child that's going to happen. It's most likely going to happen where the IRS is going to send out those checks. And it makes sense because the IRS has already got the systems in place to do it, right? So I still haven't gotten mine. I need to track that down. And apparently like 12 million people have still not gotten their checks. So that's that's an issue. Aid for school. Both sides are backing roughly $100 billion in support for schools and universities. 
I think that makes total sense. If uh, Trump wants to reopen the schools, you better give them some money so that they can do this safely, right? That's reasonable. I think that's a compromise we can all agree on. Uh, health spending, more money for hospitals and healthcare providers to treat those sickened by coronavirus. The Trump administration initially opposed money for testing, but now supports it. Duh, right? I think that's important. <laughs> Both sides want to bolster the Paycheck Protection Program and do a number two round of that. What do they disagree on? Liability protections. That's a big one. Republicans want to shield businesses and other organizations from personal injury lawsuits related to the virus, and Democrats oppose those protections. I don't know how you feel about this, David, but I've been to a few businesses. I went to get my teeth cleaned at the dentist, and I had to sign these ridiculous like forms saying that I hadn't been around anybody, you know, I hadn't been exposed to coronavirus, like basically just another waiver that you, you know, like when you go skydiving, you have to sign this giant form saying you're not going to sue them and all that stuff. Right. So I feel like it's, it is unfair to, we, we, we are in such a litigious society here that if we don't do something about liability, it could be really bad for businesses. Oh, I think this fully is the reason into it. Google, these massive companies are having a no travel policy for their employees and they're not requiring them to come to the office because it's eliminating the liability. Right. Nobody can say, you made me go to this conference or you made me get on that airplane flight. And then on top of that, I think if you're, once you have a company of 10,000, 20, 40,000 employees, you probably constantly have somebody who has COVID as well. Right. But I think a lot of it's just driven by the, it's legal. That, like what's driving that. Um, they, they, they'd much rather their employees come in. And I have some stats about, we can get into about working from home stats. Yeah. Oh People yeah. Are starting, they're done with it. People are getting tired of it, right? We're starting to see the yeah. bat, the backlash. Um, so those are the big ones. The payroll tax cut I mentioned, nobody's interested in that except the White House. And then Democrats just have a ton of other funding, US Postal Service, the elections, food assistance, transit systems, student loan relief, like quite a range of programs. And Republicans just want to focus the bill um, on COVID directly. That's that's what's going on with stimulus right now. So again, not that much to report. Hopefully in our next episode, we'll have an actual bill or a proposal to talk about. Something related, state CPA societies and the AACPA are calling for federal relief for state and local governments amid the coronavirus. This is something that has also been a sticking point, uh, actually a non-starter really uh, with, with many Republicans in the Senate bailing out basically the cities like New York City that had to spend a lot of money to fight this thing. I think that's going to change as we see the virus is moving inward into smaller cities, right? Florida is, is being hit all over the state right now. And I think you're going to see those senators change their minds on bailouts once those local areas that are you know more Republican leaning start to suffer and can't afford to pay their bills. So states like, for example, the South Dakota, where, I mean, there's like, oh, we've won this. It's dominant. We, we've done so well. If we never locked down, we have no, like, eventually it's going to get there. Yeah. And their opinions are going to change in the way they Past legislation is going to be affected. Yeah, I think based so. on the impact on their own states, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Have you been keeping up with the whole like PPP loan forgiveness stuff? So I saw that the ASCPA released a loan forgiveness tool. This is at pppforgivenesstool.com. It's powered by Biz to Credit. So AICPA, in partnership with Biz to Credit, created this online form. It's available to any business, any CPAs. You can fill out the application online. And the tool produces all the forms that you need to submit for forgiveness. Yeah. And the ACP, they're really marketing this and pushing it hard. Yeah. They really are. It's all over social media. I'm constantly seeing it come through my feeds, but I'm also also seeing from the AICPA, they've had these webinars and they're telling people, don't apply for forgiveness yet. Wait, just wait, just wait. I feel like the AICPA is sending out a mixed message here. Like, do you, should people use your tool and apply for forgiveness or should they just wait? Well, and I'm not really sure, like, what is the relationship here with AICPA and Biz to Credit? 
Like, why did the AICP create a tool that is available to every small business and non AICPA members? Luke Templin on Twitter said at David Leary at Blake Oliver, did the AICPA just miss out on an opportunity to add more members or add more value to their current members? I would have considered rejoining to have access to the hashtag PPP forgiveness tool. So like by giving it away to everybody, did the AICPA just like reduce value for its members? So a small business owner now could just Google find that tool because it's has a great domain name. They find the tool and they just do it there and then they don't hire their accountant to do this for them. Right. It's like, I think the AICPA should be focused on creating tools for its members, right? Not like, not, not potentially taking work away from them. It's strange. Yeah, it's just it's it's a confusing message. Um, yeah. they're, they're doing a good job marketing it though. Um, <laughs> it's a good domain name. It is a good domain name. What else do we want to talk about? I think that's all I've got about PPP stimulus. Well, you had a, a PPP article about your stripo stimulus. You want to touch on that? <laughs> that's a good one. So I just thought this was another. Uh, this was a funny article. Like clearly, the reporter had a good time writing this. It's a Reuters story, and the headline here is. Strip club stimulus reveals lingering uncertainties over U.S. small business aid. And the, the opening is, is just quite good. Let's see. Backlights off, music quiet, and polls bare. Strip clubs across the United States closed earlier this year in the face of COVID-19 social distancing measures that precluded the up-close nature of the exotic dancing industry. Like many businesses, these cabarets, lounges, and gentlemen's clubs hoped a $660 billion small business administration loan program would help them weather the lockdown. But nearly four months since the launch of the loan initiative known as the Paycheck Protection Program, it is still unclear whether the SBA can make it rain for them. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Is the problem, if I remember correctly, that when they created the PPP structure, right, and and the SBA loans, certain types of businesses can't get them? This was the Trump administration. Trump administration put this in the PPP bill. Quote, companies that present live performances of a purient sexual nature are precluded from participating. So there's a question as to what is purient, right? What is a performance of a purient sexual nature? Does that include dancing? There's a variety, variety of like levels of undress. So this is now going through the court system. Um, Just like all of the tax issues when it comes to these kind of businesses, it can be a little bit, you know, entertaining. So clubs have sued and two federal judges have rebuked the SBA for excluding the establishments from receiving the forgivable loans. So the SBA had a previous policy that restricts organizations, for example, churches and strip clubs. But when they passed PPP, apparently houses of worship got an exemption from the normal rules. But like like the the whole point of the PPP is – the paycheck protection program, if those people are getting paychecks, like if it's a business giving paychecks, like I just... Right. If it's a legal business, this is a business that is allowed to normally operate, but for some reason they are excluded from the uh, program, like that just seems unreasonable. Like if we should be excluding illegal businesses, but not legal ones, right? Regardless of what you think of them. Yeah. If they have an EIN number and they're paying taxes... Yeah. I mean, let them in on it, right? And filing payroll report, uh, 941s... And, and this has an impact on the workers there. Like you said, Jordan Lawrence is a dancer who is interviewed in this story. She lost her job in insurance during the pandemic and returned to her former profession as a dancer a few weeks ago. Even though she had saved up for years, she struggled to pay her bills without her old job. Lawrence said she is frustrated the SBA is squeezing her industry just as she is getting back on her feet and the stage. Quote, these people need to come out here and interact with people like me because they are interfering with our livelihood. We have bills to pay too. 
So let's let's transition from that to working at home. Yeah, we may have spent a little bit too much time on that. On that. But, <laughs> but but I mean, it's 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 the fundamental nature of it. It goes back to fundamental base problems of the PPP. Like it's called the Paycheck Protection Program to protect people from getting laid off, and it's gotten everybody skewed it to their own definition of what that program is. Yeah, like it's gotten so far away from what it was designed. How many weeks now? It feels like a year ago, but it's just like what we're now at. Time, time is irrelevant. There is no. That's yeah. true. <laughs> Sometime in 2020, that's how we'll just summarize everything. Back in 2020. The first year of quarantine. So, I mean, maybe they could, these strippers could work from home. I don't know. Is that even possible? But I can well, tell actually, you. Did you have, you have a work at home article about this? There has been uh, an actual like humongous uptick in camming these kind of performances on a webcam. And, you know, people pay. So, instead of going to a club... You can now watch somebody dance on a camera from the comfort of your home. It's social distance. So now you have all of these people working from home too. So just like accountants are working from home, right, we have dancers now all working from home too. It's like it's it's the whole economy is shifted to work from home. And I think that's a great transition to the remote work topic. So Journal of Accountancy had an article about why Zoom meetings really leave you exhausted. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I feel this. I don't know about you, David, but like if I'm on Zoom for more than a few hours a day, I get a little weird. Oh, I, I'm I'm ser- I'm like not kidding. I'm about to do. I'm going to do Zoom calls three days a week policy. I like like I cannot. It's just killing me now. I, I'm 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 probably on Zooms now eight to ten hours a day, five days in a row. I mean, it's actually you can tell for us. We used to record the podcast on Friday evenings. I physically text you on Friday afternoon. I'm like, I physically cannot do another pod. I cannot get on with you, Blake. Let's push this out to Saturday morning because you're it's tired. affecting our podcast. Yeah. Like I'm physically and mentally exhausted from doing Zooms. So, so what's the reason that Zoom is exhausting? Like, why? Well, it's doesn't... it's techno stress, right? Techno stress, um, techno stress, and uh, it's a lot of things. I think with the working at home, it's hard to use these tools in a healthy manner that balances personal and professional. If you think about your your warm up to the day before you you eat breakfast, take a shower, you could do all those things. Like now, you're waking up and you start a Zoom call. Mm-hmm. Right there, 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 there's no boundary, and I think that's that. That's part of it, and then the physical part of it. Like different people have different quality of audio. You and I go out of our way to make sure we have high quality audio because it's physically exhausting to listen to poor quality audio. Yep. And I'm guarantee you, every Zoom meeting you're in, most people do not have a high quality audio connection. Yeah, it's you can and you can really tell when somebody invests in like a good microphone and there's no feedback. It makes a big difference. Yeah, and uh, and then on top of that, they're saying it's just exhausting to watch the Brady Bunch view, right? Where you have the table and you have everybody's teeny little head on all of those things. Because you're trying to focus and see what's going on with all of them at once. And it's like, you, you can't, it's really hard to do, to do that. I turn that off. I just look at the active speaker at a certain point. Yeah, I'm I, always trying to figure out who's speaking and your your, your eyeballs. And <laughs> yeah. You can't find out. Um, so, it, there's that going on. But now I think in general, there's a bunch of articles I saw this week about like people want to return to physical workspaces. Um, they're working too many hours now. Uh, there's statistics about people do – staff does worse when working from home if people mm-hmm. are checking in on them. Yeah, there was a story in the Wall Street Journal. Companies start to think remote work isn't so great after all. And it's basically that idea that the productivity – that we saw right after the pandemic caused everyone to start working from home. That was due to people being afraid that they might lose their jobs. So everyone's just hustling at home, trying to get a bunch of work done. And so we all were like, Oh wow, remote work works because we're all being productive at home. But that was like a temporary, at least that's the gist of this story. 
And so, you know, cracks are emerging, projects taking longer, training is tougher, hiring and integrating new employees are more complicated. Now, this is all anecdotal. I don't think there were any studies done of this yet, but it will be interesting to see if if the studies that do inevitably follow back up that long-term remote work is is less is more challenging than we thought. So I have some stats about remote work from three different studies that just give some insights to where I think we are right now in this work from home thing. Because I know that I'm personally, I'm feeling trapped. You know, I can't go to Starbucks. And I've worked, I've worked remotely. And that's the difference, I think. Working remotely and having freedom to go to a Starbucks or anywhere you want to work where I can take my backpack and mm-hmm. work is much different than being locked in, forced to work at home. 100%. I used to get out every day. I would go have breakfast. I would go have coffee. I would go out to lunch. I made sure that I got out. I rode my bike. I was always out and about even though I was working from my apartment. So, let me jump into some of these articles. So, um, this is an article on CFODive.com. Staff do worse when asked to report frequently, accounting study shows. So, this is actually specific about accounting review. So, staff who are frequently asked to report on their progress. So, basically, Blake, I hit you on Slack every hour. Is that project done? Is this done? Is this done? Uh, staff who frequently are asked to report on their progress perform their work more poorly than staff who aren't, aren't subject to the same reporting requirements. So, this is by, by reporting frequently, you mean my boss says, Every day when you get to work, tell me what you're going to work on. And then every day before you log off, tell me what you did. Yes. So so if you're being micromanaged, you're going to be less productive. It makes sense, right? It would be kind of stressful too, right? To, to have to do that every single day. Um, there's another article on smallbiztrends.com. 66% um, working from home say they're more likely to work nights and weekends. So it's yeah, just absolutely. Uh, 19% homeworkers, and they, they, they're starting their day earlier and finishing later since because of the quarantine. Mm-hmm. So you probably used to have a nine to five job where you spend an hour on both ends commuting. Now you're just filling that with work. Well, work expands to fill the time you allocate to it, right? That's the classic phrase. So if you have no boundaries between work and home, because you're always at home, then you'll just work all the time. Yeah. And so this was a survey of two, uh, 2000 Americans that typically work in offices, but now have been uh, working remotely because of the pandemic. So I guess you and I probably wouldn't fall into that this right. survey, but um, less than half of them, 49% said they feel their boss trusts them when working for home. Less than half. Less than half. Wow. And um, about 43% think their bosses trust them for the most part. And then 7% believe their employer does not really trust them at all. So I have a theory about this whole remote work experience, experiment, if you will, mm-hmm. which is that what it is revealing that is causing stress for both managers and employees is that we are actually really, really unproductive going to an office every day. That the amount of work that you actually do is not that much. And studies bear this out. We've talked about this in the past on the podcast that most knowledge workers do like four hours of work a day and the other four hours in the office is wasted. And the office experience hides that. It masks that because you spend time in meetings, you're walking around, talking to people, you feel like you're getting a lot of stuff done, even though you're not when you actually measure it. Then when you take away the office and all the trimmings and trappings of that, and you sit at home, you're only doing like four hours of actual work and you feel really unproductive and you feel crappy about yourself and your boss is wondering what the hell you're doing all day long. And then on top of that, like going to meetings physically is not as exhausting as all these Zoom meetings, right? So then you're beating yourself up because you're just like, I didn't get any work done, but I'm, I can't even bring myself to try to do some work because I'm so beat up. Well, because meetings most of the time aren't actual real work in an office setting, right? You're not actually accomplishing anything, right? You're just, you're hanging out in a lot of cases. 
So I have another survey that's also on small business trends. Um, this is employees want to return to a physical workplace. So this is from uh, a survey done from some company called Hibob, H-I-B-O-B, H-I-B-O-B. And this is another 2,000 people they've surveyed, a uh, different survey though. 36% of employees prefer to work from the office. 43% of employees would like to return to the office once or twice a week. And only 21% of employees actually work from home. Want to work from home? Yeah, regularly. So people want some balance, right? And I think yeah. a lot of this is it's freedom. If I want to go there, like, like I, I want to be free from being micromanaged, right? I want the freedom to be trusted that I'll, I'll work correctly and I'll, I'll get work done when I'm at home. But I also want the freedom to go to the office, mm-hmm. right? I want freedom to work, you know? And so it's coming down to an almost full circle swinging back the pendulum to where you started about like this balance of being locked down versus mm-hmm. the risk of COVID. Like I think we're, I think this, this right now, the work from home shift swung way too far the other way. And now the balance is going to have to swing back the other way. Like it's just going to have to, people are going to have to have some options to go work in an office for part-time and some part of the day. This article actually has some tips in here as well on, you know, ways you can prepare your office, right? You use any guidelines CDC or your local government's providing. You want to disinfect and remap your seating arrangements. Um, I've heard a lot of companies that are doing um, swapping days like, hey, you, you, there's a sign up form and only 10 people a day can sign up and come into the office, right? You can't have 30 people in the office, mm-hmm. but you can have 10. So there's ways for companies to do this and get this balance. But yeah, it, it swing too far the other way and people are going to start rebelling against it now. I, I mean, it's human nature. Like we just can't be locked down like this. Yeah, we're social animals. We need to be together for a certain amount, but there's a compromise. Again, going back to the the theme at the beginning of this episode, right? It's not one or the other. Perhaps there is a happy medium. Hey, I'm hoping that you're enjoying this episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast. Normally, this is part of the podcast. There'd be an ad for a great product or app. But as you've probably noticed, this episode is missing a sponsor. So Blake and I could really use your help. If you know an amazing product or service that is looking to get in front of forward-thinking accountants and bookkeepers like yourself, please send them our way by emailing david at cloudaccountingpodcast.com. Make sure they tell us that you referred them, and I'll be sure to send out a nice Cloud Accounting Podcast fan package to you and your firm. And be sure to tell them to hurry. There are only 10 slots still remaining for 2020. Now back to the show. Shall we talk about scale factor? Yeah, let's jump I feel like that's factor. the elephant in the room. Yeah, it, it's massive, massive, massive. So uh, I think we talked about scale factor two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Yeah, I thought this was all going to be over. And then Forbes came out with this story you've brought this week that just is like an expose on scale factor and and what went down there. So perhaps you could summarize it for us. Yeah. So it was a two, three weeks ago, three episodes ago, um, scale factor announced they were shutting down. And we talked about that then. So scale factor, those, if you're, this is your first time ever listening to our podcast and you've never heard of scale factor, um, scale factor is one of, I like to call it, it's a accounting or bookkeeping firm with engineers. VC funded, they had raised a hundred million dollars in a year to disrupt bookkeeping. Yeah. And I'll put links to some of our old podcast episodes where we have talked about them because we've questioned the numbers for a, a lot because they they just the like, what are you doing with that $100 million? When they've come out and in their press releases, they said, we only have 500 customers or 750 customers. Yeah. The math never worked. It never made a lot of sense. And the fundraising rounds kept getting bigger and bigger and we weren't seeing the results. And we've been following them since they were like a series A company, right? Yeah. So they had first, they raised 10 million, then not that long after they raised 30 and then not long after that they raised 60. And so the the 
reporter that released the Forbes article about scale factors shutting down three weeks ago, and it was all blamed on COVID. He actually, I talked to him. He actually called me for an interview. This is David, David Jeans? David Jeans, yes. David Jeans. And I don't have any dirt, like, other than only from our perspective of, like, it is, you know, anything we've had on the site, some of the links to the podcast, I mean, but the only, I think for you and I, we'll bring the tables. We have this perspective because like, he didn't know these other companies existed, like Taxvisor, who we've talked about, right? Who, you know, mm-hmm. th- that, that was a few Vis- Visor. Yeah. Visor, right? And they, they yeah. promised to do everybody's taxes and they didn't file people's tax forms. And this combination of tech and a service. And we've talked about this a lot over the last 18 to 24 months, you know, on the podcast. So I just, you yeah. know, give him those, some of those insights is from an industry perspective um, where things are at. And, but he, he did and I actually invited him to come on the podcast because he said, oh yeah, there's some other things going on. I'm chasing down from a story perspective. He didn't leak. He didn't, he wouldn't give me a, a, a bite and nothing. <laughs> and now I know why, because this week he dropped a major scathing article about scale factor. Yeah. So you, you mentioned this just a moment ago that scale factor, Kurt Rathman blamed COVID-19 on scale factor needing to shut down that COVID hit, they lost 50% of their clients and therefore there was no path to profitability and they decided to shut down and give the money back that was left to the uh, investors. Yeah. And so let's, uh, maybe we just go through this article a little bit. I have not highlighted an article 20 times since Pfizer tax when I, when I chased down that story. There's just a lot here to unpack and we can just kind of go through it. Um, highlight yeah. by highlight. We can talk, talk through it. To summarize our conversation last time, you kind of suspect, suspected that the VCs, they didn't see the numbers they wanted. So they pulled their money out. Like you were kind of thinking, oh, this is the VC's fault. They got scared. They thought there was an easy out and they pulled their money back because they just wanted yeah. to save their, well, what they could of their investment. And after the $60 million investment, I would be surprised if they didn't have control to do that. To do that. Right? It'd be crazy to give $100 million to this startup and not be able to yeah. uh, take it back if you want. And my take <laughs> at the time was like, I'm not fully surprised by this because remember we talked about how at Cooper's Connect, they rented a booth and they never showed up the first day. They just had a bunch of cardboard mm-hmm. boxes sitting there. There's just these, these little, you know, I could call them half-assed signs that the boat wasn't right. Like mm-hmm. there was just yeah. little signs. And if you step back and watch it over the past year, you could, a lot of things did not make sense behavior wise. Well, this, this article, and we'll just, let's go through it line by line. Cause there's a lot of really shocking things in this article to talk about. Give it to me. All Give right. it to me. So basically the, the gist of it is many customers started to find out, and these are like, like a cafe. It's like a coffee shop. They're starting to figure out that instead of pro- producing financial statements, they basically found out that it's not AI or software doing it. It's a dozen of accountants doing it manually. In the Philippines. And then they found out it was in the Philippines as well. And that you know, it's kind of similar to we discovered three years ago with like or two years ago with Bykeeper, right? Um, it mm-hmm. really wasn't it wasn't made very uh, forward what was happening with that. And well, it was explicitly sold as this amazing software that does your accounting for you. Yeah. And it wasn't. It it hardly any of it was, right? Yeah. And and then and, Ultimately, like a lot of customers are saying they receive their books filled with errors and then they had to rehire other accountants or clean up the mess themselves. So, and, and like this, to summarize this, right? Like they, not only were they not delivering on their software promise, they actually sucked at just being a bookkeeping firm as well, apparently, right? <laughs> well, it kind of makes sense, right? The, the software developers trying to do accounting, right? Be an accounting firm. It couldn't be more different. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, in getting down you know, kind of this article, it talks about this whole, that mindset of like, make, uh, fake it till you make it. 
And so VCs are like willing to throw money at these companies until the product comes up to expectations, right? And and because of that, that causes these companies to just use super aggressive sales tactics, right? And chase capital. Well, like you said, the Facebook ads that they must have spent millions on potentially. We saw them everywhere. everywhere, Yeah, constantly. And And they were going after small accounting firms like Cruise Consulting and targeting them with ads, like trying to steal their clients. Or we talked about that last week or a couple weeks back when we talked about Scale Factor. They were going after uh, Acuity, right? They were really hammering. And then, you know, creating this impression, they're they're chasing revenue and putting all their efforts into selling a product instead of building the product, right? And it catches up. And so... You know, this is a quote that was uh, from some accountant that remains uh, a name. So that's what I found out. Scale Factor is pretty much a glorified bookkeeping firm, says one accountant who, like other former Scale Factor employees that spoke to Forbes, asked to remain anonymous because they signed non-disclosure agreements and feared retaliation from the company. So when I read that, you know what that reminds me of? What? Elizabeth Holmes and the... Theranos, yeah. This, this, this intimidate your employees and customers as well. So... so- before we get to the customers, yeah. like you mentioned the outsourcing thing. So I, I think this deserves a little more emphasis. Not only was Scale Factor not using AI machine learning software to do the bookkeeping, they were using accountants and bookkeepers, people to do it and kind of like selling it as software behind the scenes. They didn't even have their own outsourcing operation. They outsourced that to a company called the Outsourced Accountant which is a firm that specializes in offshoring in the Philippines. TOA Global, and they have sponsored the podcast. So like we know the TOA Global team, and this doesn't make them look good now because essentially the tool was glitchy and it couldn't be relied on accurately to sort transactions. So then Scale Factor is like, let's hire our own in-house accountants and bookkeepers. And then apparently it still was not correct. They had problems. So now they went to TOA Global, the outsourced accountant, and then they still had errors in customers' books. No matter how they attacked us, they just couldn't seem to be good at bookkeeping. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like they weren't even good at outsourcing the bookkeeping, which is even crazier, like playing middleman. Just a total disaster. And and okay, so now let's get to this customer. Yeah. There's a great example in the article of a customer who was, you know, harmed by this. Yeah. So so a customer last April canceled her contract. Uh, her name is Lindsay. Lindsay Rinders. She complained online that she found out a Scale Factor employee had incorrectly credited $17,000 to a customer of her e-commerce business. By the time she realized the error, it was six months after the fact. So she was out $17,000. She couldn't get it back, recoup it from the customer, right? So when they started with Scale Factor, they had really good, clean set of books when they hired them. Let's take that with a grain of salt because I think every business owner, when they start <laughs> okay. with you, That's true. they're like, oh, my books are super clean. It'll be super easy for <laughs> well, you. Maybe it was a brand new <laughs> empty zero or QuickBooks file. <laughs> <laughs> Like it's literally, there's not uh, any data in the books, right? Um, yeah. So what happened, but this is the, the really bad part. So Scale Factor finally agreed to offer a partial refund on her annual $23,000 contract, but only if she signed a non-disclosure agreement, barring for, barring, a non-dis, uh, it says non-disclosure, but it's really a non-disparaging agreement, barring her from talking about her experience. And she said she did not sign it. Yeah, yeah that's a pretty, pretty big mistake. And there's a good quote from a coffee shop owner. So there's a San Francisco-based coffee shop. The owners, uh, Carolina and Robert, staying. They're they're currently hiring a new accountant to fix months of erroneous bookkeeping. And they argue basically like we're just a coffee shop, and if you can't do us, you can't fix our problems. You can't fix anybody's. It's not that complicated, right? <laughs> the the reason this article existed a couple of weeks back is Kurt Rathman and Scale Factor. They um, approached 
Forbes to write an article. Like, hey, would you like to cover us and how we had to shut down because of COVID? Now, why would they do that? So now that the uh, reporter has written this scathing article, basically the 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 so I'll just read the, I'll read this actually in the article itself so I don't misquote this. Scale Factor declined to make Rathman available for an interview for this article and would only respond to emailed questions replying. The email below is filled with numerous factual inaccuracies and misrepresentations, said Rathman in an emailed statement sent by a spokesperson. I have no further comment. So just saying it's inaccurate, but not specifically what's inaccurate. Yeah. So there's other stories about customers that they just finally canceled the contract because they didn't deliver the promise. That's the thing that's really like, I don't know, I find this troubling is they had an internal policy to slow play customers who wanted to cancel. There was a quota. You couldn't allow more than a certain number of customers to cancel. So they would play all sorts of games with them to try and keep them on the hook. Oh, yeah. We, we, we can get into the games. They played lots of different kinds of games, right? Let's talk about so, it. So when they started to go for the next round, some investors on their due diligence started to discover like, wait a minute, this is more of a service company and less of a tech company. And they're starting to discover. So I feel like anybody who did any due diligence should have realized that. Let's talk. We'll talk about that at the end. (laughs) And and actually, there's a whole Twitter thread uh, because we could talk about the the tech and VCs and their their defense of Scale Factor, which we can talk about tech culture and that uh, separately uh, a little bit. But yeah, so not only did they, like you said, they they prioritized refunds and they they slowed churn and they tried not to. Uh, let customers they de- leave. They deprioritized refunds. Yeah, because they didn't want to affect their numbers when they go to get more VC right. money. But not only that, is they, they actually put creative accounting, so they put all of the customer service team under cost of goods sold. Well, they no, they didn't. So that's the thing is... Oh yeah, sorry, the opposite. Yeah, good, I'll let you do yeah. this. So this is the accounting trick. Like, so if you run an accounting firm, the labor to do the bookkeeping is part of cost of goods sold. That's cost of service. And they were putting it under operational expenses, right? Yep. So it made their business look like a tech company because they had very little cost of goods sold, right? Like you're selling software and they were, they had buried it all in, uh, in operating expenses. Like for, so for a, a firm that supposedly does accounting to do this to its investors, uh, I bet they were pissed when they figured that out. Yeah, and then did you see how they uh, what they did with um, their employees? Because they were pushing for so much sales, they needed sales numbers to get more money, right? Uh, so the incentives, right? Incentives, yeah. So they basically had their sales team. They came out and they said, if the team could sell eight hundred thousand dollars in new bookings for the month of June, Scale Factor would double the team's bonuses. Several employees say. So for some employees, like that was a chance of a lifetime, right? Mm-hmm. So by the time it was all done, they they summarize this they celebrated they had a big party like they hit their numbers they they even had like arts and crafts and they had the big huge checks you know like those you know for photo ops look at this big huge bonus checks i got then a few weeks later they basically were told some of the deals um weren't good and that they're not they're illegitimate and the team did not hit their goal and they're not going to give that money but in the meantime during that time because scale factor kind of quote unquote hit the numbers scale factor was able to get that next round wow wow so as i as an investor right figuring this out that scale factor had like distorted their financials by misclassifying like major accounting irregularity to misclassify the the service to do the accounting and bookkeeping not put that in cost of sales or cost of goods sold i'd be pissed about that and basically that's lying to your investors and then to do that to the sales team to have them hit this goal and then oh they didn't really hit the goal and use that as a way to get your next round of funding i mean that we don't have the other side of this story here because 
Scale Factor has not commented on this. You know, I, I, we should probably go ask them. I, I've, I've, I've reached out in the past. Yeah. But and now I'm starting to, in a weird, stupid way. Like, <laughs> I think I've, 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 even when I was still into it, like I've, I've reached out to Kurt Rathman before. I reached out to him then. I reached out to him when I was at Auto Entry. I reached out to him as the podcast as well. Like I've reached out to him a couple of times because I think I reached out after like their first round of layoffs before. Like like I've like when we were wondering about the numbers, right? And just never got any replies back. And some part of me is like, well, yeah, of course, because if they ever talked to me or you, we would have smelt everything yeah. <laughs> instantly. It kind of I'm like some. I, I mean, it could be completely just me inflating my own ego, but at some level, like I feel like. I've talked to Pilot. I've talked to Bike. We talk, obviously we talked to Bikekeeper. We've talked to every other player in this space. I mean, I've talked to the founders of Bench. I've talked to everybody except for Scale Factor. I, I finally talked to Scale Factor boys at QuickBooks Connect and then had a Zoom call with them a little bit later on. But like, it was very, I always felt like it was really hard to get a hold of them. Like in general, for, for me, usually I reach out to a company. I'm like, hey, I'm David Leary, blah, blah, blah. I was in two for 20 years. They get on the Zoom with me. Like, I just felt it was really, really hard to like, you know, connect with them. Yeah. So the one thing is there's a couple of conclusions that came in here, right? One of them is the, at the end of the day, the only tool that had any automation in it was um, an internal workflow engine, basically a guided to-do list. And the best way I could think about this, it's essentially- It's um, a practice management tool. It's like, it's not, a, yeah, or it's more similar to like a uh, process street where where yeah. you, 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 some of that, you do some of the manual process, then you hit a button, and then that goes, kicks off a, uh, a Zapier or something, right? It runs Workflow automation. But yeah. And so that's about where they're at. And if I had to bet anything, it was onboarding. <laughs> it was all like, <laughs> how to take that, that, that Facebook ad, turn yeah. that customer and onboard. It was probably all on that side. And then there's a, uh, at the very end of the article, um, and I'll just uh, read this word for word. At the end of the day, Kurt Rathman explained to Forbes last month that customers were craving a person rather than a computer to do their accounting. We really thought we could automate the entire back office of a small business, that Rathman said, a lofty goal that more money couldn't achieve. But they never even got close to automating any of it. That's the thing that I don't understand is, is did they have tools in development that they just never managed to get out there? Like if all they really had was a workflow tool, then they really didn't spend the money on, on building the software or they completely failed. One thing I would add to the end of this is the VC due diligence you know, I wonder, I really wonder, I have questions as to like, how much due diligence did these VCs do? And how did they fundamentally misunderstand the business to not realize that Scale Factor was essentially a service business masquerading as a software business? And the, you know, the SaaS metrics, software as a service metrics just don't work in the service business. You're never going to get the growth that you need to get to get the returns that you need. You know, that's why VCs typically don't invest in accounting firms. It's a slow growth, you know, strategy. And it makes me wonder about the the due diligence, right? Because there's this concept of eat the dog food. And I'm doing it right now, my job at Melio, right? I run my business on Melio. So I know what's good, what's bad, what we need to fix in Melio, et cetera, right? And then that was the same when I was at QuickBooks. Like you eat the dog food. I was on the Intuit payroll team and you would, you know, you really use the product, right? Yeah, You'd either yeah. find a, a business to volunteer for, but you'd actually use the product. And if I'm an investor and I'm going to invest in Uber, I'm probably going to take some Uber rides. Do investors like for a company like this, they're like, all right, here, Scale Factor, do my books and I'll decide if I'm an investor or not. I don't see that happening. I just, yeah, no chance. So how is the due diligence then? Like who's eating yeah. the dog food or is it just well, you're making decisions on slide decks and promises? There is so much money in the VC world chasing the good deals that if you're good at selling your idea, your concept, your startup, if you're good at presenting it, there isn't actually a lot of due diligence that happens. 
unfortunately, because the VCs don't have a lot of time. They got a lot of money. They need to spend it. And they're just throwing it at you. And and this is a perfect tie-in to modern monetary theory, David, believe it or not. Let's not skip to that yet. Let's not skip to that yet. Because like, <laughs> I, I want to talk about like, the whole, the VCs. Now, there are people out there defending scale factor, right? And many oh, of them are yes, from yes. outside our space. Like on Twitter, everybody who's in the accounting bookkeeping space are just like, this is embarrassing. Like it, it really does. It makes account. It may, I mean, it's a CPA, right? It yeah. makes CPAs look bad. It makes bookkeeping firms look bad. It creates weird price pressure and weird expectations because they marketed it so well. And ultimately they messed up small businesses, businesses. And that's the worst part about this. And so I see like this defense, this like startup culture, like, oh, well, you know, it's startup culture life. You're, there's going to be mistakes. Like these things happen. And I'll read a quote from uh, somebody on Twitter. Like, so this is a VC investor. And he's like, you know, he, he's really criticizing. So just like we went through this article and talked about the article, he went through and criticized the article. I don't think you mentioned his name. It's Siri Srinivas. And so he basically went through the article line by line or point by point and like criticized the article because he's like trying to defend, you know, that articles like this are kind of out of context. And, and this guy clearly has no idea about scale factor because he writes one thing is that this is just qualitative feedback. You named three whole companies without knowing any details. He said, I surmise that Salesforce had hundreds, if not thousands of customers. The article presents no numbers. I can I can bet the best companies have three grouchy com- customers. Like this guy obviously has no idea that scale factor only hit like 500 customers. Right. Like, and they at best maybe 750 well, in their one news, their one press release. And I got some feedback. I don't remember who it was from after that episode that we did on scale factor uh, that you have to take into account customer churn in the number of customers that they had. So it's not that they spent, you know, millions to get a few hundred customers or a thousand customers, whatever it was. We don't think it was more than a thousand, right? But that they potentially had many thousands of customers over those years and they just lost them. Well, I don't even know if that's true. And here's the reason why, like anecdotally speaking, like usually I hear from accounts and bookkeepers, oh my God, I just got a client that was at Scale Factor and their books were a mess. Like I, I hear it through the grapevine and I just didn't, like I didn't ever hear this much about Scale Factor. And the reason why is I don't think they had enough volume. So yeah, there's a defense from the other startup folks. It's unfair that they've been targeted this way for failing. But I think, you know, if you really dig into it, it's pretty bad. Yeah. And then he talks about the lady who lost $17,000, right? And it's like, oh, this shit happens. You know, like it's going to happen. Like it's very this like, uh oh, startup life. Sorry. You lost $17,000. And that really pisses me off because it's complete bullshit. It's okay to make it and fake it if you're making a $14 avocado toast delivery. If you that up, it's not a big deal. But if you up people's small business by $17,000, you could put a small business under. You could. And it's just not like that mindset cannot be there with small businesses. Deliver an avocado toast, fine. Be a bull company, fake it. But if you're going to get into our space, accounting and bookkeeping, you need to do it correctly. Yes. That's it. If not, get out of our space. Go go work on avocado toast deliveries. It kind of pisses me off that this attitude is there of like, so, oh, well, a small business owner got Who cares? Well, so, 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 you know, so Scale Factor deserves blame. I think the VCs deserve blame for not doing their due diligence. And this easy money pouring into startups enables this attitude, this fake it till you make it, collateral damage is acceptable sort of attitude of running a business. And we saw that with the visor tax. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's okay. 
because you know we're, we didn't file your taxes. Oh we're, well, <laughs> we're failing fast. We're breaking things, right? What was it? Zuckerberg said, "Move fast and break things." Was the motto at Facebook for a long time, and we'll see. We see where that got us as a society, right? So there is economics at play here. This is not just something that's caused because people are are I don't know unethical or whatnot. In the end, everything comes down to economics and behavior, right? And 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 money determines behavior. So so here's here's the tie-in to modern monetary theory. Okay, which we touched on a little bit in the last episode. We actually didn't talk about it, but um, I do want to talk about it. I made a joke about my kids having to pay back the loans or something like that. And right, right. So last episode, we were talking about the stimulus and the the billions of dollars of PPP. And I said, I really hope that this did the job that it actually saved 50 million jobs because it's a lot of money and our kids are going to have to pay for it. And we were like arguing about that, right? We we're joking about that. That's an argument against spending a ton of money on stimulus is that, hey, this all has a price. So how much is it appropriate to spend and whatnot? And so one of our listeners, Sean Birdsell, thank you for listening, Sean. He had a really enlightening take on this. And it made me think a lot about economics and about what you and I were talking about. And he said, uh, I'll just, I'll read this thread here. He said on Twitter, at S Birdsell, Disappointed to hear at David Larry and at Blake T. Oliver make a few amateur mistakes on the at cloud account pod in discussing how the U.S. debt will impact future generations. A few thoughts. You need to look at debt service versus GDP or debt service versus total federal spending. It doesn't matter what the debt is in absolute terms. It matters what the servicing costs are relative to your national spending. You also need to consider debt to GDP. You don't repay the debt. You just grow the economy. If you consider COVID-19 to be on par with a war, you're doing just fine. Yes, there are risks associated with the unprecedented quantitative easing undertaken by your central bank, but this broad notion of, quote, my kids will need to pay for all the stimulus or will have to raise taxes to pay for all this PPP funding is simply false. So basically disputing that idea that we are going to you know, have to pay this back someday because that's not how uh, federal spending works. And this concept is kind of broadly known as modern monetary theory, which is that the federal government prints money and has a monopoly on money. And so if you think like an accountant, you're going to think there's always a debit for every credit. So if I create money, right, I have to, if I create an asset, I have to create a liability. That's how a balance sheet works. And I think most of us intuitively think that way. When we think when the government prints money, somebody, someday we have to pay that back, right? Or we spend money in the federal government, we someday have to pay that back. Well, I mean, that's when, like, I think in the, the 80s when they started these debt clocks, right? Yeah. Or whatever. Right. Yeah. We're burdening future generations. And so economists in this, um, you know, modern monetary theory world say that actually that's not necessarily true because the federal government can simply print money. We can use our ability, our monopoly on money to simply print it and spend it and increase the money supply, and it never actually has to get paid back. And the only time it becomes a problem is when you have too much inflation. So basically, as long as you can keep inflation under control, you can just print money. You know, Some economists are saying we should do more of this. And that's how we should dig ourselves out of the COVID recession is just print money, give it to people, let them spend it. I'm vastly simplifying, of course, these economic arguments, but you know, that's one. And that we shouldn't be focused on the debt uh, too much. But here's the tie-in to the whole VC thing, right? Over the last 10 years, ever since the financial crisis of 2008, this easy money policy of the government has existed. Since 2008, the Fed has doubled the amount of money in the economy, doubled the money supply. What they've done is 
push down interest rates to almost 0% to create economic growth, we've made money really cheap, right? So that's had a good impact in that you know we've been able to sustain a long period of economic growth. But the downside of it, and we can see this in Skill Factor, is that there's so much money in the economy sloshing around that it doesn't always have a place to go and it doesn't always get allocated to the best places. So the idea is like when money is cheap, you as a venture capitalist can easily obtain it. And so you're not really that concerned about where you invest it. And then I guess if you're you're if you're a rich person that has lots of money and if interest rates are only paying 1%, you're going to be more willing just to be like, start giving it to VCs like go try to make some real percentages on this money. Right, because you can't get it in you know a savings account. Those interest rates are like nothing. You, it's hard to get from bonds, right? Because bond interest rates are super low because the, the federal government essentially can you know control that with uh, federal interest rates. So the only place for the money to go where it can get a decent return is capital markets, the stock market or private investments. And so that's what happens is rich people have a ton of money because it's cheap and they go put it into assets. And so that's why the stock market is at record highs, even in the middle of a pandemic, because not because the fundamentals are good, but it's because the money just doesn't have anywhere else to go. So I went back and forth with Sean on Twitter about this, but, you know, I, I get that concept, like, uh, and I, I think there is uh, merit to it that, you know, at times you can just spend your way out of a crisis and not worry about paying it back yet, because if the economy grows, that's great. But there are costs to making money cheap. There's costs to this kind of policy. And and the cost is that when capital is super cheap, people don't spend it wisely. They don't invest it wisely. And so then we get these long periods of like mediocre productivity growth because, you know, you have companies like Hertz that finally went bankrupt, but probably should have gone out of business 10 years ago, but they were able to keep going because they could just borrow and borrow and borrow and borrow at 0% interest rates practically. You know. I mean, isn't that the whole the the, the mainstream lending po- program that as part of the stimulus bill, it's giving out the the is the U.S. Treasury uh, that is the Treasury no. yeah, directly uh, providing giving loans. Yeah, the Fed, the Fed the Fed, yeah, the Fed's going to give loans at ridiculously small prices. Yeah, or interest rates, and they're buying. This is something that's new. Is they're for the first time ever they are directly buying corporate debt. So the idea is let's get these bonds off of these corporations' books, and then they can go out and borrow more money. But like in the end, you're just propping up something that may not be working. I think the term I read is zombie corporations. These ones that are not really creating value. They just they just they are able to keep existing even though they're slowly failing. And there's signs of this all over the economy, right? You can even the the, the colleges, right? Because there's so much money given out in student loans, the colleges keep raising prices to get bigger student loans, and like that cycle, right, over and over again. And they're not necessarily creating value. So you get all of these like you know, sort of mid-tier schools that are honestly providing a mediocre education. They're able to exist because everybody needs a college degree and all this money is floating around and pouring into them That for that reason, because the money's easy. So yeah, there's a cost. And um, the Wall Street Journal has a great Saturday essay that just came out yesterday called The Rescues Ruining Capitalism. The subtitle is Easy Money and Constant Stimulus Have Undermined the Basic Dynamics of the Free Market. We've Paid the Price in Low Growth and Productivity, Falling Entrepreneurship and Rising Inequality. And so this is the counter argument to modern monetary theory, which is that yes, you can print money, you can make money cheap, and you know you can keep the economy going that way, but the price is low growth and productivity. And in a capitalist system, you need companies to go bankrupt. 
you need jobs to be destroyed so that new businesses and new jobs can be created that create more value. And so if you don't allow that to happen, then you, you stamp out innovation. So apologize to our listeners if that was a little too wonky, but I, I think it, you know, it all ties back to this stimulus and it all ties back to uh, monetary policy. And, and although we may not pay that much attention to it um, on a day-to-day basis, I think it's like really critical. And it's interesting balance, right? Because there's some some portion of the economy, right? And some portion of citizens really need that money or they're not going to lose their home, right? Yeah. They're going to be homeless, right? But there's a lot of people that don't really need the money, but there's so much of it out there that they can be careless with it. And, I, and careless is a, a broad word, but that's kind of what it is. Like, ah, well, then throw it at that startup. What do I care? Yeah. Right? I just get some more free money from the government. What's crazy is that like, uh, so, the, you know, the Wall Street Journal is not exactly known as being a, a publication that brings up like class differences very often. They seem, they like to ignore that, Right. But in this article, there's a mention here of of how like the current policy is really stimulus for the rich. It's a subsidy to the rich because if you can borrow, if you have the ability to borrow money, like you have relationships with banks and it's cheap. So it really helps you as a wealthy person take money and invest it. And, And poor people are honestly left out of this. So it's not a good policy for the poor in the end. And anyway, um, I thought that was interesting. Take a look and read that. And, and, and hey, if you want to have this conversation with me on Twitter, please, I'm at Blake T. Oliver. I'd love to talk to you about it. I find it fascinating. There's a few more stories here that I want to hit on, but we're, we're, we're almost over our time here. Actually, we are I, over I, our time. I, I, I can do a turbo app news one. Where okay. It's just the, the, the headlines quickly. So, congratulations to you. Blake Drav just took an $8 million Series A funding. Yay. Thank you, David. Yeah, that was a big deal. Apparently, there's a class action suit against Plaid. So, Plaid's what everybody uses to access their bank feed data, right? They, they, yeah. Visa bought Plaid. It's all your bank feed data. Apparently, they're alleged, uh, pe- there's a lawsuit in California that it's violating people's privacy rights. So, we're going to have to keep an eye on that. That's a story that's going to be brewing. Uh, Cabbage, the loan app, the app Cabbage, they now offer checking accounts. Uh, Brex, who now with their bank account, they're offering FDIC insurance. The other startup bank we've talked about, Revolut, they added, they got 80 million more new funding. Remember, they bought a bookkeeping firm in April. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's kind of wraps up app news. And I think to, to go out on a positive note, I heard a podcast this week um, called Painting the Art of Possible with Brad Smith. It's on the Moves the Needle podcast. Former CEO of Intuit. Former CEO of Intuit. And it really just gives like his, his life story a little bit and like kind of what makes him tick. And there's lots of little bullets on like productivity hacks you could implement into your own daily life. Um, you really understand the DNA and culture of Intuit after you listen to it. But it, but it's a good, like, I think it was recorded way before COVID. It just finally got edited and then put out. So it's like a, it's just, it's a, it's a light thing to listen to that takes you out of this world we currently live in. So we'll put a link into that and uh, nice. add that podcast in. So I already mentioned my Twitter handle. I'm at Blake T. Oliver. David, if people want to reach you online, where can they do that? I'm at David Leary. And until next time, David, have a great week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Time for the classifieds. Still sending spreadsheets of unclassified expenses to clients? With ClientHub, automate this process and get client answers instantly. ClientHub is a client communication platform that helps you consolidate client communication, securely share files, and instantly get answers and much, much more. Get started today with a free trial at clienthub.app and enter promo code CAP25 for 25% off your first three months. ClientHub, 
frictionless client communication. Smashchat integrates with QuickBooks Online and Zero to help put an end to cash flow problems by using daily, weekly, and monthly forecasts, cash flow calendars, and a powerful customized what-if scenarios. You can visualize your clients' finances in clear and intuitive ways so you can take action and reshape their cash flow by getting them the funding with one simple application. It identifies when extra cash is needed and can match your clients with multiple financing options via more than 50 screen lenders, and you can advise on the best offer suited to your clients' needs. Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash that is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash S-M-A-N-S-H-A.